Welcome back, it's Fred again, and uh, I'm just gonna uh, do one last uh, little walk through here. I'm just come up, come up from that beach where all the limpets are. Now I'm in the high tide zone, in the littoral zone, where all the floating debris has been deposited by the waves. And I'm just gonna, you know, briefly walk through here and kick stuff around and tell you what I see. And you know, a lot of what I see is just, you know, groovy, worn-out beach wood. It's just little bits of of that and stuff that's all worn down but then of course there's all kinds of crab shells in there as well from the Dungeness crabs and you can see the fronds of bull kelp and all these worn down bark pieces and underlaid by tons of that beautiful gravel we've earlier described and so a real matrix of uh, organisms and basically just the detritus from organisms really is what it is and it just provides this sort of cross-section of living uh, matter in this area on the high portion of the beach. And uh, yeah, so it's pretty cool. So I've got like some, I've been picking up razor clams here. I'm going to take the edge of this razor clam and I'm going to take it and I'm going to slice it into this bit of bulk kelp frond here and see how that works. Yeah, just cut it right through easy, no problem. Things are good for that. And then there's like, oh, there's just a whole sort of bearded section of mussels. The blue mussels that are all alive, and they've somehow got probably got knocked off a log or something that was floating, and now they're on the beach here. So something you know, they're gonna flies at the very least may, you know, unless I put them back. But they're I don't know how that's gonna work. So anyways, I'll put them back where they are. That's nature's way. As compared to carrying them back and chucking them in the ocean again, I'm still looking. Now moving further up where there's in fact more debris. That was just the beginning of coming up in this zone. And it's just now the flies are here, you see? So yeah, it's uh, February, and there's the detritus from the beach. Uh, all the rockweed, sort of, it's not a lot of it really, it's just thin little bunches of it. And there's different colors stemming from red, different kind of reds to greens, and rope-looking type fronds from the, uh, the bull kelp, and of course, different other types of sea vegetation that uh, is all intermixed here with the casings of the worms again that you can see these big worm casings and a whole lot of these worm casings now all turned up here and inside of that you can see the arms and also the carapaces of different crabs and one of the interesting things I guess that you could note about this scene right here is the fact that it is in fact this I guess it's the end of the first week or somewhere in there of February and there's flies in there, and the flies are doing their thing in there. So if something's going on, and it's cold, you know, it flies. So that would allow sparrows, I know, which really love this environment here on the edge, and uh, other birds to come down and actually feed on those flies. So that's an interesting thing to note, that they're out here right now in February. So, yeah, just pointing that out. And they're just quietly doing their thing. They're not overly robust. They're just kind of down in this layer. I'm looking down at this stuff. These worm casing things are just crazy. And that was a weird sort of, it's almost cartilaginous type of thing. Yeah. And I just picked it up and it just slipped out of my hands. Um, yeah, and there's just a whole lot of groovy wood here. And I'm looking down at just more shells, more shells, more shells. And all that stuff. So this is the sort of interface zone, again, you know, uh, this is a place where nutrients, in fact, are being chucked up onto the shoreline, like here's some crab bellies, 
and all these worm casings and all these crab shells. Like up here now, there's one, two, three, all a bunch of crabs. And uh, yeah, and a ton of these worms and all this seaweed. Yep. And yeah, so huh? So that does play a role, I guess, at some level in bringing up the biomass onto the shoreline. I'm picking up this big, ooh, this is a big wormy one. Some of these things are quite heavy. This one's big, but he's not that heavy. It's like the size of a grapefruit. And I'm gonna put him back. Ooh, there's a big, good one too. Yeah. Well, and at the very top of the beach, there's just a whole lot of them. Like now, I'm at the very top of the um, littoral zone, I'm gonna call it again. And there's just a whole mass of these sea worm casings all interlaced with kelp. And kelp uh, with the root fasts attached. So something has lifted the root fasts off the rocks. Uh, and maybe, I don't know what's, what, how that's worked or if it's from a storm or what. But uh, there's just a whole lot of it, and those are the two things I'm seeing, all intermixed. Big piles of these, like, worm castings. It almost looks like mop heads, sort of, but that are way more um, rubbery. And then uh, all the kelp with all the fronds and all the substrates, the root fast that we're talking about. It's basically a big tangle of roots that are come from these underwater Algaes, I guess they really are, and they're a really sort of uh, integral part of the coastal environment here. The kelp forests provide a lot of structure for a whole host of other marine organisms, and when it's around, it's usually associated with otters. Sea otters, we talked about them before. And currently there really aren't any numbers of sea otters here on Haida Gwaii at all. But at one point they probably will return because they are found in other parts of the coast again. And I should expect they'll be back at some point here. Some point in time again. Yeah. You know, when you spend the time living here, or even maybe where you are, but here in particular, it really seems that even when it's calm, like right now, I'm looking out over the North Pacific, and it's just calm, right? You can feel a little hint of a breeze, but a quick little breeze showed up. And you can, even in the calmness, you can feel the strength and the energy of this environment. You know the power of it and how quickly it can change. And it's just, you know, quite a formidable thing. And to be duly noted by the lowly human who's trying to walk around in there and using a uh, rain poncho vest that he got at the dollar store. You know what I mean? That's sometimes how it is.
and nature's just doing its thing. And even when it's calm here, you can feel the energy of the ocean and the tension between the surface layer of the ocean and the actual atmosphere itself. And I can see out into the fog where it just blends into basically the clouds over the ocean. And be a great t time to be on the water right now, boy. Scooting along. It's not a wave in sight. <laughs> Cross out through the mist in your dugout or your kayak or your skiff and head out into the fog for a few hours. Make your way back before the system changes. See if you can't get yourself a halibut for lunch or something. And yeah, boy it's quiet and calm. It really is, you know, because this place rocks typically with weather. Of course, every place does have its calm moments. It's all part of the seasonal matrix of weather systems and species associations and bloody blah. Those are all some kind of words. Yeah. Well. Hope I'm not just trying to. Oop, there's a sparrow. I was going to say, hope I'm just not milking every last minute of these podcasts and pointing out sparrows and whatnot. So, you know, maybe just to be fair to you all, I should shut her down and thank you now for the time you've spent spending time listening to this. And I just want you to remember that it's basically just me babbling on, right? It's basically me babbling on all alone, wherever it is I am, trying to make sense out of something. So, and trying to associate with nature, but, and yeah, just doing it. And I know a lot of it doesn't really make all that much sense, but I'm doing it anyways, and maybe it's entertaining in some form. And I do have uh, some interviews lined up for the next series of podcasts coming, where I will be speaking with, um, some very interesting people who I guess I won't describe quite yet, but um, I think you'll probably be interested in meeting them, at least on through the radio. And uh, those are Red Cross bills. Yeah, Red Cross bills are pretty cool. Uh, we have Red Cross bills here. And we have them there, everywhere, all across North America. And they're uh, sort of um, a really interesting species in the sense that they do have wide-ranging populations. But, of course, they've just recently learned that so many different species do exist where before they thought they were all subspecies. So that part gets a little complicated. But having said that, just know that there's crossbills all over the place. And one of the things... Uh, that they rely on, or the thing that they rely on, are cone crops because they are they feed on the cone uh, production of a variety of conifer trees, uh, you know, spruce and hemlock. And so then they feed up in these uh, areas up in the canopy where the cones are there in profusion. 
and they rely on this as part of their major way that they exist as they are as crossbills and sort of associated with them as well quite often around here anyhow are the pine siskins and so quite often they'll move around in mixed groups together uh, the pine siskins and the red crossbills and uh, so you can distinguish them uh, just by observation physical observation but also by sound quite often the um, Pine siskins will give themselves away with a little bit of an upward buzzing sound. And the red crossbills kind of do a chip-chip thing. And then when they fly, they give a big dip and sort of spread their wings and flap and then dip and fly. And they usually do that in a big group too. And uh, so the, one of the interesting things about these birds is that they're colorful. And they remind me a little bit of parakeets in a way. And their bills cross over, they physically cross over, the upper mandible with the lower mandible crosses over, sort of like crossing your legs in a chair. And that's a kind of a funky bill formation to observe that in a bird, but it's quite useful for them because they use that and apply that bill morphology to their feeding behaviors as they associate with the types of cones that they're feeding on. They're extracting the seeds from within those cones using their bill to open the cone, in fact, and their tongue to extract the seed, kind of like a parrot. Anyways, I always kind of found that kind of cool because when you're watching red crossbills feeding above you in the canopy, quite often there's seeds, right? They're spiraling down and spiraling down and spiraling down in these sort of little whirlybird type things. And you can see it in the sunlight coming through the trees when the sun's opening the cones and they're in there feeding and all the seeds are swirling down through the tops of the canopy, down into your face basically. And you see the fla uh, flashes of color of the reds and greens of the crossbill. And quite often they'll come down even close to you while they're feeding. If you've just got your child mind going on and you're being mellow, then you can observe them up close and they'll let you. And they're just these really cool little birds. Anyhow, um, I just saw some chipping over and that was a good trigger for me because really I was just about to wind it down. And uh, the crossbills, too, are, um, like I said before, reliant on the cone crops in order for their survival. So if they don't have cones, then they have to move around until they can find the cones. So what that means is, essentially, for healthy uh, crossbill numbers to exist, then you need to have, you know, relatively large contiguous forests, which have uh, old seral stage uh, forests in there with uh, canopies that are producing cones. Otherwise, the crossbills would not be allowed to survive without this as their food source, which they've obviously evolved quite specifically to use as a food source. And it gets even more complex, uh, I guess, in some ways when you think about uh, relating the, the crossbills to what's the famous Darwin's finch, right? The Darwin's finch was cool because uh, you could see Darwin was saying later upon reflection, he realized that, hey, the Darwin's finches are probably, it looks like they're diverging their morphology from the similar species. And you can see different shapes in the bill morphology of the same sort of similar um, uh, finch species. And that led, led him in a way to conclude to this idea of uh, <clears throat> natural selection and also the, the changing of morphology and speciation. So with the crossbills, uh, in, if they are living in specific um, sort of regions, 
like I think these ones here are. We don't have the. I don't think we've had the real information yet on our crossbills. I really, 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 really wish we had a study going on here in Haida Gwaii to study the red crossbills here. But anyhow, I think they're largely my my thought. I think my view is that it's quite possible that they're a localized population, and uh, so maybe genetically distinct in a way. So maybe just one more species of crossbill. But they. Um, uh, the point I'm getting at, I was talking to one of the guys who's like the, the guy basically in crossbills a long time ago, and he was talk. He was telling me about how he could predict bill morphology based on cone morphology. So basically, he said that the uh, if you if I send him cones, right, then uh, of the region, then he could predict the morphology of the bill of the crossbill because he said that the interrelationship between the morphology of the bill was absolutely connected to the morphology of the seed uh, cone crops that they were extracting their food from. And the, the variation in morphology for cone uh, morphology in regions is associated largely with, you know, just the specifics of living in a place and adapting to that place, et cetera, and so forth. And that's what we talked about before when we talked about island ecosystems and how, you know, they show ecosystems so uh, clearly. And they're, of course, in different regions of the world, quite different, right? Um, yeah, so uh, it's similar to the crossbills and the cones that they're feeding on. The cones throughout various regions and tree species have different shapes, and as a result, the birds feeding on those shaped cones have uh, associated shaped bills that work perfectly for extracting the seeds with their tongues. So that's kind of a cool thing to think about when you're thinking about crossbills. Another cool thing about crossbills is uh, I think that they'll just nest at any point in time. Uh, it just depends on the, uh, the levels of uh, production and how secure they feel with the seeds at any point in time in the year sometimes they will breed and I've never actually physically found their nests I found territories where I saw them uh, interacting like they were in fact breeding but never did in fact find the nest the one thing I did find curiously though however back at home where I'm down coast here from where I am now I was on the beach observing crossbill come down and and foraging for the thin root Lits, the fine hairy rootlets of an upturned spruce on the edge of the beach. And the funny thing was, is it was a white wing crossbill. And we're not supposed to have those here. So anyways, I did see that though. I actually did see the white wing crossbill gathering the root f uh, fibers from the upturned tree on the beach there. And it was kind of an undercut, too, on the sand, you know, where he was up there, and so he could get that really good stuff for making his nest. So I would really would love to find uh, and see some crossbill nests here at some point in my life. I consider that to be a kind of a life goal, and I'm a big fan of the red crossbill. And I, I used to, um, when I was a younger man, actually spend time climbing trees. There's guys here that do that professionally, and these guys are really kind of interesting they keep in shape boy going doing that but uh, I used to do it when I was younger and uh, yeah you get up into the high canopy and you, you hang out if you can get your head above the top of the canopy well then now you got this crazy view right 
and you're basically looking down onto the top of the canopy. And uh, so that's what I used to really like to do. And anytime I could steal time away to go climb a tree that would get me in that position, I would go and do it. And I sort of sought that out. And so some of the places to do that quite often around here would be, you get into areas where there's a bit of elevation. And so the trees are in fact smaller and or on a cliffside where you can get to looking at a riparian zone below you and or we're just at eye level. And so if you can sit in there and just chill, right? And I don't even mind having a glass or a glass of wine and just hang there. You know, just chill and be comfortable and sit. And then over time, things start to happen. You know, nothing happens when you observe quite often. Like when you're sitting there talking like I am and wandering around. Quite often you got to chillax yourself and just chill. And then things happen around you. So... For some point, some reason I am mentioning that, I'm just poking my nose back out through the woods. I mean, I'm really desperate for some something like a like a narwhal, you know. <laughs> but that's not going to happen. So I'll probably just have to end the episode like that. And for what it's worth, thanks again. And we'll see if I can keep doing this, but maybe I'll take it in a different direction this time and not so rambly. Who knows? All right. Bye.